Give over thine own willing, give over thine own running, and give over thine own desiring to know or be anything, and sink down to the seed which God sows in thy heart. This is the Greek Bible study, session 15. We are reading the Gospel according to Mark, and we left off in chapter 9. I think we left off with the transfiguration, is that correct? Verse up through verse 8. I remember we did the transfiguration. Yes. Did we talk about Elijah? I don't remember we did. I don't think we did. But I should ask, are there any questions regarding the transfiguration? I just wanted to mention again that this word in Greek is the word that gets translated as transfiguration. See, what verse is that? The verb here is in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. I may as well give the verb too. That basically means his form was changed. It was transfigured. Uh, the Latin is transfiguratio. I think it's a clearer kind of use if we would actually use the Greek word metamorphosis. So what was the thing about the dwellings? The dwellings, that verb means to put down a tent actually, literally. The word for tent in Greek is, I think I'm spelling it right here. We have the English word scene, I believe, S-C-E-N from it. If I make any mistakes now, I correct them if I can before I send out the copy. But that's the noun for tent. And actually, when you're referring to the temple in Jerusalem, the dwelling, it's often literally the word tent that we're talking about in the temple, the Holy of Holies. But that's at least the original sense of the word. You know, when the Israelites were still a very rural kind of people out there living in tents. Are there any uh, questions about the transfiguration of Jesus or that first verse where... Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's right. Is there anything further there? Verse 1. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not have taste death until they have seen that the kingdom of God has come with power. I think we talked a lot about that a couple of weeks ago and how friends have understood that to be going into that state of that kingdom of God, that state of eternal life, being aware of it, having a full sense of the presence of Christ, of God. Okay, let's go on and to verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Then they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. In verse 9 again, this phrase, son of man, and I think I've mentioned this a few times already, the word for man in Greek is anthropos, but what is the word in Hebrew? Adam. Adam, yes. Adam and Eve. Adam means man or mankind. That may not be apparent from the English. It's still used in modern Hebrew as well to mean man or mankind. And again in verse 10, you know, I should say in verse 9 again, 
so often in Mark, Jesus appears to want to keep secret some of these more extraordinary things that the more intimate disciples and apostles have seen about Jesus, that he didn't want them to publicize this everywhere quickly and have people misunderstand him as being a political kind of messiah or savior in the sense of throwing out the uh, oppressing Romans in their army. Um, I'm trying to figure out this in a more basic way. So reading the footnotes, it looks like Elijah is supposed to be John the Baptist. Yes, Jesus okay. is explaining to them that, at least referring to the fact that it was John the Baptist who got beheaded, and they did whatever they pleased with him, which was to behead him. And so Elijah has come, is what he's saying here. If I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to remember, with the uh, Seder, the, the Jewish Passover evening meal, uh, or when they have a meal, they leave a space, a, a seat right. for the coming of Elijah, if I recall that when I've been to one. And uh, it's this right. coming yes, before, and they still do that. But Jesus is saying here that Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist. Shall we take that only as an inference? Is there any direct textual support for that? Regarding John the Baptist? I'm not aware of any text that would, other than this that says that. I'm just noting that footnotes are all by uh, human translators and interpreters. Yeah. Not saying they're not right. I, uh, I just made this point yesterday at a different Bible study on John that you have two different things going on. When you have a translation, a specific translation of the Bible, that is one thing. The footnotes are something different. Perhaps some of the footnotes come exactly or with that particular translation where they might give an alternate translation of an alternate Greek verse for that particular verse. On the other hand, a commentator will add his notes to the translation, and that can be anybody and all sorts of people. So you may have just one particular translation. What I have right in front of me is the New Revised Standard Version, and there are multiple commentaries that you can buy when you buy your version. I know the Catholics always make a point that it's a Catholic version of the New Revised Standard Translation, you know, just that the commentaries are Catholic commentaries. But with other commentators, you just have to look at the front title page or whatever and see who's commenting on it and if it's someone you know or don't know. Henry, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 13, which also describes this passage, it says, Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Oh, good, yes. Uh-huh, that's great. I wonder if the same thing occurs in Luke. Sarah, did they look at what, the, what that says in Luke? Now let me see. I appreciate your diligence in finding the reference. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it is, it is sort of a relief that there that it should say that else somewhere else, because just reading this, this passage, it, it, you wouldn't know. I have to go looking for it. I don't see it offhand. I don't know where that occurs here. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I think we've got the Matthew to confirm. What confirm. verse was that in 17? Matthew 17. Matthew 17, 13. verse 13. Now, it's also important to remember that when Matthew and Luke were writing their Gospels, it appears that they already had the Gospel according to Mark as one of their source material in terms of what they had to say. And so they knew what Mark said, and they sometimes take verbatim what Mark says. Sometimes they cut out things, 
Sometimes they add things, perhaps most likely from other sources. One source they call Q, the letter Q, which is an abbreviation for the German word Quelle, which is a German word, and it means source. So this is just another source that the, uh, let's get that in order here. And this seems to be a source that was used, uh, another source, whether it was a written source or an oral source, but there was a lot of material that both Matthew and Luke used to add to what you see in Mark when they were writing up their own Gospels. So that's called Vela, and it's often just put down as a Q. Source is Q. In what way did he restore all things? And we're back in Mark. He said to them, Elijah is, is indeed coming first to restore all things, verse 12. So in what way did John the Baptist restore all things? Let me just see what the Greek says here. I've not seen a reference on that, but it is, I believe, restore. The Greek says, he said, and he said to them, Elijah, indeed, Elijah having come is first, is restoring everything. Is that in the present tense or the future tense? It's a present tense. Apokathistane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you want me to write down that word? I don't know if it's necessary. Wasn't it preparation? Did he come? Before, yes. And, and, and I think the reference, yeah, Nancy's bringing up some. Of course, it was the baptism of repentance that John had. And that was important because Jesus took that over. The baptism, the immersion, being one into the need to transform one's ways of thinking, of acting, of speaking, how one saw oneself, the need to change, to convert to God. That was all involved in the actual repentance, as you recall the word. The Greek word is metanoia. And I think that's the restoration, the, the real need to repent in its original sense, not just to feel sorry or remorse, but to actually have a change of mind. And as I said, this root in this word, the, the root N-O there, is a root that means uh, mindset, frame of mind, how one looks at things, the way you perceive everything. And he came to prepare the way of the Lord. Yes, yes. That's an Old Testament reference also that's mentioned earlier in Mark. And I said this, this is unfortunate that this word metanoia in Greek is translated as repentance because it's really much more than that. And it's so important. It's like the very first step in the kind of change God wants us to do is this metanoia. I'm sorry, not immersion. I've got this wrong here. Uh, the bap it's baptism, of uh, this type of baptism of this change, this change of mind. I'm trying to think of the right word here. Repentance? It, well, that's the word that we call, we talk about, but that's not strong enough because it, when you think of repenting or repentance, you ordinarily in English think of feeling remorse, feeling sorry for having done something wrong. That's involved in this word, but this is actually meta, as we had above, metamorphosis is a change of morph, a change of shape, of form. Metanoia is a change of mindset, a change of one's frame of mind, transformation. I have to keep going back to this because this is so important in terms of how the very first Quakers understood the first step that one needs to do is to go through this metanoia, which they referred to as, anyone recall, as convincement, being found convicted by the Lord. 
found guilty, where you first really realize that you're not as quite as good or holy as you may think you are. You know, you've been putting yourself on a pedestal for so many years, putting yourself a little too high up there <clears throat> on your lofty pedestal. And this is what is needed, this transformation, this, and it, it's a transformation in how one's thinking. If you recall in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, the Greek says, you, you'll read translations like put on the mind of Christ, but actually it's a verb that just says think like Jesus, think like Christ Jesus. That's what we are supposed to do. Think like how he thought. And that's a command, actually. Have I made any sense here? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. I would say... The early friends, like Jesus in the time that he was in Israel, they thought they had a set format in their religion that was right. And Jesus was correcting that. And the early friends saw themselves as correcting the Christianity of its time also. And so there was a parallel between the two. Like early friends, a big deal for them was the understanding of the church. The early friends had a drastically different understanding or how things like baptism worked uh, for the church, Christianity of its time. At the time of early friends, baptism was an outward thing, whereas friends brought it to mean a spiritual inward change. And so this metanoia had a strong inward component in the change that had to happen. It wasn't just what you did, but how you were also. Yes, it's absolutely inward. And what he's saying, I think, is even more true, not just of this, but of so much more, where friends so consistently or frequently looked at various things inwardly, interiorly, within you, inner, the inner meaning of something, being baptized in the crucifixion of Jesus, being immersed in that need to, taking up the inward cross of Christ, the interior guillotine, and, and executing all those things that are worldly or are not in alignment with God's will and how we are not doing what we should be doing. To have Christ, the inward spirit of Christ, help us to go further than what we ourselves could possibly do. Yes. And yeah, so that's a very important like during Jesus's time, there was a lot of persecution by those that were strongly in control of how things were. And in early friends' times, uh, there was a lot of persecution of early friends, too, by people who were strongly committed to defend the status quo of Christianity. I don't think it's any different today. If I myself or others were to go out and stand up in some, well, I don't know, evangelical church somewhere and start preaching what George Fox and others preached, I think we'd get the same kind of reaction. Yeah. Yep. Kicked out quickly. Yep, they'd have been thrown out and who knows what else. So it seems like a reversal of, of all the, some other forms of Christianity because we're supposed to change within, but as a result, our actions are supposed to be different and the hope is that we would then not sin. Whereas with other, some other forms of Christianity, the change is without its external actions and then you keep on sinning. <laughs> the outward changes should follow an inward change too. You're reminding me of Karen is uh, in Matthew. It's it's where Jesus says he's quoting the Old Testament. You know, this people is honoring me with lip service, but their hearts are far from me. They're focused on all these outward laws and regulations of their church, but that's not where it's at. That's not what it should be. Is that Mark? I'm just, what I just, I think what I was just referring to, is that, I can't recall now where Jesus quotes that. 
Yeah, oh, yes, it's in uh, chapter 7, verse 6 and 7 from Isaiah. <clears throat> it says here, Jesus said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. Henry, this is David Fink. I have one more observation before we leave this paragraph, and it's from the very first verse. To me, it's um, cognate with the distinction between inward and outward. I think that Jesus, in coming down from the side, is not content to let people simply revel in their religious experience but demands that we follow him out into the world to make a difference, to minister to the uh, human needs. To me, it's, it's seamless. It's not an either-or. But I, I am finding on the inward and outward continuum that this begins with saying we've got to be involved. I've actually given like a whole talk just on the two words inward and outward. So often when I do give other talks, I almost always have a little preface at the beginning explaining the need to look at these inward and outward dimensions of life and how Quakers have always focused on the inward, the interior, the inner, that which is within, rather than the exterior, the physical, the outward. And it's an important thing if you even begin to just read some of Quaker writings over the first 300 years you just so often will come across these words inward and outward, meaning inner or outer, inward, interior or exterior, spiritual versus physical, mental versus physical, and over and over again. And even you can have an outward mind versus an inward mind, you know, where the outward mind is inward compared to body, outward. But then you have an inward mind where your mind is focused more on spiritual things versus an outward mind where you're much more into physical, materialistic, outward kinds of superficial things. The worship can be inward and outward too. Oh yes, yes. I mean, I think we see so much outward worship there today, which doesn't change much from George Fox and William Penn and Robert Barclay's time either. Well, this is what they called for the previous 1600 years before early friends, the long dark night of the apostasy. Apostasy, well, you know what a heresy is. A heretic is someone who takes a teaching or a doctrine of Christianity and has a distorted view of it. He's got a distortion of it. And so he's a heretic because he has a heresy. One or more of these doctrines are incorrect as how he interprets them or how he understands them. Apostasy, on the other hand, is a whole slew of heresies, not just one doctrine, but many. And what friends kept on saying in those first decades was that what had happened over Christianity for the previous 1600 years was that over all that time, gradually more and more focus was placed on these outward man-made doctrines and rites and rituals that creeped into Christianity compared to what was there in the very first century in these small house churches and how they quietly prayed and what their focus was. I know we are reading in a different group, the Didache, which is a very early first century writing by an anonymous Christian talking about some very basic Christian understandings about how to live, especially, and what the kind of life you need to live. And that focus much more on how one thinks and how one behaves is, is really major in that document. The Didache actually means teaching. It's the 
teaching of the 12 apostles to the heathens, trying to convert them. So it's kind of a short handbook, a short manual or catechism, and almost all scholars believe it was written in the very first century. The full text was just discovered in 1873 in a manuscript called the Jerusalem Manuscript. Anyway, I don't want to go all there. It's important to be aware of these things. It's, um, I think today, in many faiths, it's so easy to put our trust in outward things, traditions, sacraments, rather than just having a trust wholly in Jesus. We get taken away, you know, that we find ourselves looking for power in the outward rather than just in Christ alone. It seems easier. I mean, superficially, if you have upteen number of laws that say you can do this, not do that. If you follow this right, this is what will happen. If you don't, this other thing will happen, which is very similar to what you had in the Old Testament in Judaism. And early Christians spoke about the law of the Spirit rather than the law of Moses. The law of the Spirit was to supplant the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, the 613 laws you have there in the Old Testament, along with all the customs and other rites and rituals that the Jews were following. It was quite a dramatic change, but again, it was a change to an inward understanding, an inner spiritual understanding. Someone like William Evans, 19th century friend, conservative basic friend, who said, you know, our religion is a religion of the spirit. Our Quaker religion is a religion of the spirit. And that says a lot. It's not a religion of rites and rituals. It's not a religion of upteen zillion laws. It's all inward. It's all spiritual. It's all interior. Or at least it should be. Well, it's not that God's law was given up, but it's that we know it within our hearts rather than just our head. That's the way we receive it. It's written there. We know it, but when we disobey it or ignore, then there's a callousness that grows and we become insensitive to what God wants us to do. Yes. But we should know it because the things that he taught and told the Jews that were right and were wrong are still right and wrong, but we know it much more intimately because our Christ teaches us directly. I think these refer directly to First John, where he says, you all have the anointing within you, you know all things. Well, the anointing, if you remember the word Christ, in Greek is Christos, which means the anointed one, so that you all have this anointing, this Christ within you, who can guide you and lead you if you follow him. And that is that will lead you to God and will lead you to do his will. There's a place where the scriptures say they were without excuse. And we have even less excuse for disobedience. Yes, I don't recall where that is, but I, yes, that's true. I think Paul says that. I think I'm also reminded to, I think it was in Corinthians where we were warned that we would be led away from the simplicity of the gospel, you know, that to beware that we would be led away. Uh-huh. You know, you could just spend years <clears throat> trying, if you're, Jew, if you're a Jew, even a modern Jew, looking at all the laws and regulations, let's say if you're an Orthodox Jew, I mean, you can just spend so much time doing a lot of reading. And even what I see among people in seminaries, 
There's so much academic thinking about this or that verse, but it's helpful to know that, but that's not the, fo the true focus of what they should be focusing on. They, they focus on it, they should be focusing on it so that they can then preach it. But you don't see that, or rarely anyway. At least that's my Quaker perspective, or our Quaker perspective. Okay, we shouldn't mince our words. Okay, uh, shall we go on? Okay. Okay. Okay, we have a healing of a boy. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around him, around them, and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe, and they ran forward to greet him. He asked them, What are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him up by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, This kind can come out only through prayer. So, we have a kid here who's constantly having grand mal seizures. And being a speech therapist, I know a little bit about speaking. <laughs> and obviously, it makes him mute. I'm wondering, and I, I don't have an answer for this, but I'm wondering what would be a synonym for the word spirit here as it's used to refer to this disease this boy has. It's talked about that this spirit in him is causing these grand mal seizures that are pretty severe and have been going all his life. It says here, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. Again, unclean means unclean, but it also refers to any spirit that is, is again, opposed or not in line with God's will. It literally means unclean, but that's the sense of it. If you look at verse 23, it says, All things can be done for the one who believes. And that verb, believe, believe I've talked about this before, distello, but... If you recall, what have I mentioned the better translation often of this word is? To trust. Trust. Put one's trust in. Have confidence. That's the basic sense of this word. 
trust rather than believe? Yes, the basic meaning of the word is trust, put one's trust in, have trust in, have confidence in. You know, believe in the name of Jesus. Put your confidence in the, the name, in the basic nature of Jesus, in the, the essence of Jesus, what made up Jesus. That's, what, that's what's being talked about when you use this verb, pistol. Believe, trust, put one's trust in, have confidence, have trust in. And the same thing with the noun. It's usually translated as belief or faith, but it basically means trust or confidence. That's the ordinary, everyday meaning of the word in Greek. And that's what these early Christians would have been hearing here and in, in reading, hearing this read to them, that this confidence in God, this trust in Jesus, that's what we're really talking about here. So pistuo or pistis, the noun, and he says, the father says, I believe, I trust you, help my unbelief, you know, help me where I, I really still don't have that total confidence in you. I should mention this before I forget it. Verse 27, he lifted him up and he stood up. And the other verb here, he stood up. It's interesting that these both occur here as the normal usage of these two verbs. They are both the words that refer to resurrect, to raise up. Egero, where it says, God raised up Jesus from the dead. If we use this word, Jesus rose from the dead, anhistemi. So these are the, some of the ordinary meanings of these words. We use them also to speak of Jesus. This verb, egero, it's what you do when you wake up in the morning. You egero, you wake up. Jesus woke up from the dead. Father raised him up from the dead. Anhistemi. The root of this word, the S-T-E here, means stand. So this is resurrect is to just, again, to, uh, it, it also has a sense of like to erect a building, restore a building. Jesus was restored. And it's, it's very interesting that both these words are used here in this sentence to refer to the physical miracle that we have here. In that last verse, verse 29, this kind can come out only through prayer. Henry, in my scripture, it says prayer and fasting. Yes, I have that in a note that in some manuscripts, it has both words, prayer and fasting. I think that they have just a single word there in mind because they feel those manuscripts are, are better in some way. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're earlier, older, and perhaps the fasting is in another version of this story and it was just brought over to this one as well. I just think it's very interesting to think here that the apostles, the disciples, were out there trying to help heal people. But in this particular case, they could do nothing. Jesus explains why. I'm not sure, where's the verb here? There are a number of verbs or words in Greek for pray, actually several different words for pray and prayer. This is the most common one, and yet I'm not sure what the reference is. And I don't know if anyone has a, a comment there or something as to why Jesus is saying this to them. So, any other comments, thoughts, questions? I don't want to speak too much, but I do have a comment prompted by this story. And for me, it's a powerful lesson about the misuse of Scripture coming from a painful episode in the life of my extended family. I have a first cousin who met her husband at a Pentecostal college, and they eventually ended up in a mountaintop commune where they were awaiting the physical return of Christ. 
And we visited them there, and we understood that we had different practices, but a lot of love between us. My cousin was Sandy, her husband was Nate, and Nate had epilepsy, and it was both undiagnosed and untreated because this community believed very literally that the only way to approach this was through prayer and or fasting. And they had exorcisms <laughs> to try to drive out the evil spirit. And in lack of any rational contemporary medical treatment, he simply was driven out of the community and it ended in divorce and the suicide of several of his daughters later. Hmm. So it just seems that thinking that we can only drive out, well, first to assume that this kind of disease is caused by an evil spirit or demon possession, I just think can have deadly results. So if I, I read this with a great deal of caution and relief that we need not renounce what we now know as medical science. They were taking an outward kind of interpretation. And even what you just mentioned, and waiting for a physical coming of Christ is an outward coming. And friends have consistently, I should say at least earlier, before the breakup of friends into different groups, have consistently worked on the need for preparing the way in ourselves for the inward coming of Christ, that inward presence. That's what coming means. That's the meaning of the word in Greek presence. And you find that word so often in older and conservative Quaker writings, the presence. I have a passage in a book here about the Shakers, but it could have been said by a Quaker anyway. The, the language is so similar. The Shakers were actually a break off from Quakers, for those of you who, who don't know that. Let me just see if I can find that, because I think we're basically finished here. Hold on one second. Well, that's a sad outcome of what, what happened to them. Yeah. Okay, let me just read this a couple of sentences here. Again, what she's saying, she's a, a shaker being quoted by the author here in this book, God Among the Shakers. But like I said, a lot of the theology of shakers was a continuation of Quaker theology, but with some pretty other extreme things added to them later that made them shakers. Just to make sure that you all understand that. I'll just read it here. Shakerism, a millenarian faith, claims that the end time is now. The kingdom of God, complete and miraculous, is at hand. Quakers say the same. However, the kingdom of God exists outside of time. For two and a half centuries later, the kingdom is still at hand. And then, quote, We feel that the second coming of Christ can happen any time, Sister Francis spoke in the soft-clipped voice of a Maine native. End quote. And does happen has already happened to most of us, can continue to happen to us. We don't feel, and I don't mean this as any sort of criticism of any other church, but we don't feel that the Christ is going to come back in a cloud of glory on a mountain with trumpets sounding. And this is what she's saying, rather. It's a very quiet, unobtrusive coming, which comes to us whenever we open ourselves to that Christ spirit. Almost all of that could have been said by any Quaker, and has been said. And in this particular Shaker, she understood that same thing. It's that inward coming, that inner presence of Christ that is what we are seeking. So, well, thank you, everyone. I hope, David, you found this interesting and useful. And I know Earl, too, is the first time here as well. So we will continue next week where we left off today and go on from there. So I will go over the notes and just send them to you all today or tomorrow and see you all next week, I hope. Thanks. Okay. okay. Bye now. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.
Give over thine own willing, give over thine own running, and give over thine own desiring to know or be anything, and sink down to the seed which God sows in thy heart. And let that be in thee, and grow in thee, and breathe in thee, and act in thee. And thou shalt find by sweet experience that the Lord knows that, and loves and owns that, and will lead it to the inheritance of life, which is God's portion. This podcast was a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The words to our music are from Isaac Pennington in 1861. It was composed and sung by Paulette Meyer. Her work is available at paulentmeyer.com.